Proverbs 13, starting with the 13th verse, and we'll just read these first two verses. Verse 13, he who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn away one from the snares of death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We know that they are true. You are faithful. You are true, Lord. You are a strong tower for those that put their strength in your word, quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. And we pray tonight that as we open your word, Lord, right now, your spirit would uh, anoint every word that we read. You would anoint this time of teaching. You would anoint me to teach your word. And yet at the same time, remove me from the equation that you would be heard crystal clear, that your spirit would speak to each uh, individual that are here, uh, every saint, and perhaps there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would come to know you. We thank you and praise you for the one that came to faith Sunday after the service. And Lord, you just continue to draw people every day all over this world to yourself. But when you do, Lord, you give us your word to live by. And we pray that uh, you would Show us that afresh and new here tonight. No matter how many times we've read the Bible or read these words, that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us anew tonight. Lord, just drive everything out of here that would distract us from hearing from you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you rule and reign here tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. So in verses 13 and 14, we see right out of the gate here that a disregard for the Word of God, um, according to the Lord is a disregard for one's own life. Now, you think about that and say, well, you know, you meet a lot of people say, well, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't need the Bible. According to God, this is a disregard for their own life. He says, he who despises the word will be destroyed. It's the physical equivalent to a disregard for food or for water or for exercise or for hygiene, which everybody else appreciates that you don't disregard, Right? But we know that even things like hygiene uh, are important for health. I mean, if you don't brush your teeth, you can get bacteria in the gums. You get bacteria in the gums, it actually can cause heart disease. I mean, you know, who knew that the gum was cre- uh, related to these things? So uh, all of these things, it makes no sense to ignore these physical things in our life, right? We all agree that these things are important. Most of you have drank something recently. I keep water up here, dry, try and stay hydrated. Uh, those things uh, are important to give us uh, physical life, but it makes no sense to ignore the scriptures. He who despises the word will be destroyed. And the word turns us away from the snares of death. There's so many things uh, that can kill us physically, but spiritual things lead us into bad physical things. And we'll see this as we go through the text as well. But the word was given to us by the one, the word of life was given to us by the one who designed life. Now, don't you think God would know what's best for us? He gave us the word. He created us. He didn't, I didn't create myself. You didn't create yourself. God created us, and he gave us his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, it was, near the, it was right at the end of Moses' life. It was literally the end of his life. He uh, was about to depart. And in chapter 30, verses 19 and 20, he says these words, and you may have heard, heard these before. He said, I call, and by the way, he was just giving them exactly what God told him to say. So everything he said, he said, this is what the Lord told me to tell you. He said, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and you may obey his voice. 
and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and length of days. Isn't that true? That God is our life and our length of days. But he says you have a choice. He goes, you can either cling to the things of the Lord, or you can choose not to. Now, we know that God loves us, don't we? We know that he loves us. He sent his only begotten son and gave his word as well as both love and warning. And warning is love, right? I mean, to warn someone, if you really did think they're in danger, that is love. But our decision, our choice that he places before us is first to believe, right? In in John 3, 16, you have to believe first. You have to believe the word of God and then follow it. We did that with salvation, but then we do this with the scriptures as well. If we believe God, if we love God, we will obey his voice and we will cling to him. And this primarily means clinging to the word, right? Because you and I can't physically grab God, but we have something we can physically hold in our hands, and that is the word of God. It was literally given to us by him. It's something we can cling to. We won't cling less as we mature, but we'll cling what? More as we mature. When you first get saved, it's not that, that, the, that shouldn't be the most you cling to God. The longer you say, the, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you'll cling to Him. But the starting point is to believe in, it's to trust in, it's to invest in the Word of God. We don't have to... We don't have to, uh, or I should say, we don't have to have um, faith. We don't have to have faith to keep um, to keep us saved, do we? But we do have to have faith to obey the word of God and to listen to the word of God. Uh, we need the word of God because it's a fountain in our life. You see the the image I have here on, on the screen. It's a fountain of life. This is the word of God to us. It's the start of our faith. It keeps us growing. It keeps us refreshing. In uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, listen to what it says. You've probably heard this many times. So faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of God. For the believer, there is no establishment or increase in faith apart from the word of God and from spending time in God's Word. Take a look up here. I put this up on the screen that you can see it. There is no establishment or increase in faith apart from the Word of God and spending time with God. There's no substitute for this. There's not something I say, well, I think I'd like to do something different than the Word of God, different than spending time with God. There is nothing else. Marking up your Bible is the best thing you could possibly do. It will literally change your life, save your life. We can be certain that we cannot and we will not grow apart from the Word of God. Understand that as well. We cannot and will not. You can say, you find someone say, well, I'm a Christian and I've grown over the years. Ask them, do you read the Word? Well, I don't really read the Word. I grow by just listening to radio programs. That's how I grow. I, I got a little radio program here and there. I catch a little bit of this guy, a little bit of this guy's teaching. Uh, that's filling your head with knowledge, but it's not growth. Growth only comes from the Word of God. That would be like saying, you know, I don't eat, but I grow by watching other people eat. 
you have to eat. It, you can't just say, well, I watch other people eat, and when, as I watch them, the nourishment flows molecularly through the airwaves into me. Now, that would be good for dieting. I wish we could do that because I would say, you eat. I'll kind of experience the enjoyment of it, but not the calories or whatever else. It doesn't work that way. We can't grow apart from the Word of God. In fact, as we stay away from the Word of God, our faith will fade, if we had a faith at all. Our faith would fade the longer we stay away from the Word of God. Faith grows, another one here you can look at. Faith grows in the presence of God, and fear and our flesh and futility. Sometimes people have just a feeling of futility. They grow in the absence of God. So our faith grows in the presence of God, and of course that comes with the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that a good book by a Christian author or a pastor or uh, a saint of old or a theologian, I'm not saying that uh, a Bible teaching on the radio isn't valuable. I, I, I use those things too. But they're not a substitute for the Word of God. Our faith grows in the presence of God, and that only comes through the Word of God, and then the Word of God feeds our prayer life. But not only will our faith grow to believe God more, but understand what that means in our life. More faith means the blessings to what? Love more. Believe more. Take bigger steps to ultimately flourish. The very thing Satan doesn't want you to do is he does not want you to flourish. He doesn't want you to take bigger steps. He doesn't want you to grow in your faith. He doesn't want you to see victory in your life. He wants you to be fully defeated. Look at the um, text here, though. It says that he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life. This is all speaking of the word of God itself. Third one. A love for the word of God and the God of the word comes with a guaranteed blessing and flourishing. A love for the word of God and the God of the word comes with a guaranteed blessing and flourishing. Uh, now, this doesn't necessarily come overnight. That's why a lot of people bail. A lot of people bail because it doesn't come overnight. By the way, it doesn't come easy either. Sometimes you've got to labor in the Word. Uh, those that are pastors, we have to labor in Word and doctrine. I mean, it's, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's dark nights of the soul. It's not easy but God makes a promise that if we remain in his word, it's a guaranteed blessing. Uh, it's a fountain of life. That fountain will continue to produce. Now think of all the things the word does in our lives. I just made a list. I'm sure it's not an exhaustive list. But I want you to hear, uh, maybe you forget some of the things the word of God does in our life. Now some of these things, a good number of them can be found. Have you ever read Psalm 119? It's a great passage on the Word of God, and many of them can be found there. But think of all the things the Word does in our lives. It convicts us. It comforts us. It strengthens us. It reveals in and to us. It speaks to us. It softens us. It counsels us. It revives us. It refreshes us. It upholds us. It rebuilds us. It renews us. It gives us hope. It cleans us. It gives us peace. It rescues us. It gives us courage. It realigns us. It protects us. It delivers us. It guards us. 
it causes us to worship, to repent, to pray, to pray more, to worship, to worship more, to fully surrender. It even causes us to sing to the Lord. Psalm 119.54, your statues have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. This book, and I'm holding right here, and you're holding, this book right here is supernatural, and we're super flawed, and we're super limited. So we need a supernatural book because we're super flawed and super limited, don't we? A lot of Christians, maybe they're too young in the faith to realize how super limited they are. But the longer you walk in the faith, you come to realize you need a supernatural book. You kind of believe, this is something the Lord has been teaching me lately. It's going to work itself out into a study, maybe a book, I don't know what. But this is something the Lord has been teaching me, and I don't know where I'm at in the kind of learning process. But our spirit, well, when we got saved, it's our soul that got saved. Our soul is what's sealed until the day of redemption. But we have this other thing called the spirit, right? And the spirit can believe something, but the mind and body cannot be there yet necessarily. So a lot of people live in the mind and body, but they haven't yet, they're not, their spirit is not dominated by the Holy Spirit. So you have the soul, which is secure, but uh, the soul and the spirit and the mind and body, they're all connected. But when God has the soul secure, which is salvation, but then the spirit believes the word, where the mind and body is going to follow. And there's something in there, and I, it's just stuff that I'm writing down and just jotting down and margins of my Bible and notes and say, Lord, what, what is the key here? Because when I see the saints of old, when they actually went through, th- and then they all of a sudden just shot off like a rocket. I mean, Moses' strength from 80 to 120 was totally different than the years before. His spirit fully believed. Abraham, when he got, and he waited for years to have Isaac. Finally gets him. Then he's willing to put him on an altar. There was something there in his spirit. And God's word is what does this in our life. We have to have a supernatural book to take us beyond where we're at. This book is more real than our senses or even our thoughts. Especially our thoughts. Wouldn't you agree? It's especially more real than our thoughts. Uh, that don't our our thoughts don't come from faith. Our thoughts many times are just lies and distortions of God's reality, right? So we need a supernatural book to actually correct our thoughts, realign our thoughts. The Word of God, it's spiritual. We all agree with that, right? But it's also practical. It's tangible, and yet. Even though it's spiritual, even though it's practical, even though it's tangible, it is still supernatural. If you don't believe it's supernatural, start just reading the things that God's done in the past. Say, Lord, I'm just going to start saying it's supernatural. Lord, the book is supernatural. Your word is supernatural. It is a Swiss army knife for both surviving and thriving in life, the word of God. I'll say that again. It's a Swiss army knife for both surviving and thriving in life. It's truly a life preserver. You know that you know, term, you throw a life preserver out? This book is a life preserver. It'll preserve your life. I, I put out on um, uh, Facebook uh, this week a report that middle-aged people, uh, it, they reduce their mortality rate by 55% attending church. 
Well, if that's what attending church is, I'd like to see if someone could do a study for those that truly believe and read the Word of God every day. It's got to go higher. When we get in the Word, when we pray in the Word, when we live out the Word, we will be transformed. This is what God will do. And the path to our life is right here. I love this by uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers. He says, if you pray Scripture, you can be sure you're praying the will of God. If you pray Scripture, you can be sure you're praying the will of God. Say, I, I want to learn to pray in accordance with God. Find scriptures that tell you what God is saying and pray them back to him. Quote them. It, by the way, it's really even better than trying to think of your own words sometimes because you're really praying the things that God has given down through the ages. This is what the word does for us. Let's move to our next couple of verses, verses 15 to 16. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. Verses 15 and 16. What does this mean? Well, good understanding gains favor. A prudent man acts with knowledge. We see that uh, the way of the unfaithful is going to be hard. A fool laying open his folly here. Good decision-making comes from the Lord. It makes steady gains, and it gains God's favor. So good decision-making, not only does it come from God, but then God blesses when we do it. So God says, all right, here's the way I want you to uh, make decisions. We say, yes, Lord, we make those decisions based on him and his word, and we gain God's favor. Bad decision-making, it is self-led, and it's laced with self-shackles. I'll give you an example. You run into someone, they're a Christian, they have a Bible, they open it once a month, get to church here and there. You run into them. They have a budget. They say, i got all kinds of problems. What if I have a $600 car payment. The car company did this to you? Yes. They kidnapped me. They drove me down there. They forced me to sign a $600 car payment. Let me guess. It's an old beater. No, it's the top of the line. It's, uh, it's an incredible looking car. It looks like I'm a millionaire. Are you? No, I'm not a millionaire, but it looks like I'm one. Right? Bad decision making. Hard to get out of these kind of things. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't all tempted to feel, man, I, I want that. But we're not led by feelings, or we're not supposed to be. We have enough feelings. We, that's why we need the Word of God to say, all right, uh, did, you, did you open the Word of God and say, Lord, is this a good idea? Because he would have given you a lot of verses on this. Did you call, where it says find counselors and saw, did you call a Christian that you know loves you and will pray over you and you just say, hey, and they ask you, did you get a couple of questions? No, I didn't need any of that because the dealer said this is an awesome deal. Right? Bad decision making. Doesn't end up. Well, and we end up, uh, you know, the, the foolish decisions are our own fault. The Word of God is there to give us guidance in these areas. Let's look at the next couple of verses, verse 17 through 18. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. We're to be a faithful ambassador. 
We're all called to be. It says, uh, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Uh, not all of us here are doctors. I know we got at least one here tonight. But we're all called to bring health by the words that we speak. Do we speak words of life? Do we speak words of truth? We're all called to be faithful ambassadors, bringing healing and bringing the counsel of God's wisdom and gospel wherever we go, anywhere we go. You know, it doesn't matter where we're at. We're supposed to bring things that build people up. But it's also here, it says, uh, he who disdain, uh, shame will come, he who disdains correction, he who regards rebuke will be honored. We also have to be able to receive counsel. Are you able to receive counsel? Are you able to be teachable? I make it my constant endeavor, personally. Um, you know, I, when I look at people God's used in the past, all the great leaders, all the great teachers were very teachable. Do you think Joshua was a great leader? He did anything Moses said. He was Moses' assistant. Elisha, anywhere Elijah went, what do you want me to do? You won't find many people like that anymore. I mean, there's, still, there's still some, but you don't find many people who have a submissive spirit in our day and age. Everybody knows what they, everybody knows. What they know. That's why you know, the, the social media rants are so, uh, you know, everybody is the smartest person in the room now. Instead of being teachable, submissive in spirit. Elisha knew more than all of us in the room probably combined, and yet he had a teachable spirit, right? Caleb and Joshua to Moses. I make it my constant endeavor not just to preach, but to receive preaching. I listen to other men of God. Some aren't even alive anymore because they have a lot to say from the times that they lived on this earth. And Chuck Smith was one. I mentioned Dr. Adrian Rogers a few minutes ago. But we have to be teachable. We have to be coachable. We have to listen to counsel. Let's look at the next couple of verses, verse 19 through 21. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul but is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. Those who are wise will have godly goals, will set godly goals for themselves. You know, godly goals for their children. Godly goals for the family. Godly goals for, you know, Lord, I want to grow in these areas. Uh, they'll hang out with people that have godly goals. 2 Timothy 2.22, that we pursue these things with those that are also uh, you know, like-minded in faith, if you will, with us. We'll have godly goals and we'll have godly desires and we'll pursue them with the people of God. And the good news here, these verses tell us that um, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. Uh, they will be accomplished. These things, uh, again, not necessarily as fast as we want. Some of the spiritual goals we set, some of the goals for, uh, you know, goals that we have for the, the fellowship here, they will come to fruition if we wait patiently and do things the way God says to do it. Try and do it man's way or try and do it our way? Different story. But they will come to fruition. They will flourish. Those who are foolish, well, they'll keep investing in and pursuing the lies of their own mind. You know, we can get a lot of thoughts that don't come from the Lord. They'll keep investing in the things that come from this world, 
The world has a lot of opinions and ideas, and they'll get uh, investment or they'll keep investing in things that come from Satan. And this, by the way, these verses, um, verses 19 through 21, a soul accomplished, uh, it's an abomination for fools to depart from evil. I mean, once people are in bondage to sin, they can't, they can't depart. How many times you've met people that are in bondage to addictions and they would, or you've at least seen interviews or something on a TV, they said, I can't stop. Right? Because now they're in bondage. We were in bondage. We've been pulled out of bondage to actually walk with those who have been set free. All of us in freedom. We talked about being one in Christ on Sunday to pursue these things together. But these verses, these uh, four verses here, they're a picture of the narrow road and the broad road. It's not hard to roll downhill on the broad road. It's very difficult. No, anyone that tells you the Christian life is easy has not read the whole story. Not easy. But it's the most wise thing we could ever do is to follow that narrow path. It's well worth it. And we will flourish. It's the whole tortoise versus the hare thing, right? The world looks like it's sailing past the believer. We're just kind of patiently plotting, Lord, I've had this dream. You know, me and my wife were talking you know, this morning about, I think you guys ladies were talking about it last night or in the prayer, you know, Hezekiah and uh, Elizabeth praying for a son, and they forgot they'd even prayed for it, and all of a sudden God gives them a son, right? The things of God flourish in his timing. When you plant things, it's not like you're going to come out the next day and say, there it is, rows of corn. Take some time. But this broad road versus narrow road, the narrow road has a lot of uh, attacks, has a lot of difficulties, but if we patiently follow the Lord, patiently follow the Lord, it will work out. It'll work out for you, brother and sister, that are, that are saying, well, we've prayed this and we keep doing this. And say, the Word of God says it'll happen, but it's not happening. You just have to patiently follow it. You're not the first person. You won't be the last. You won't be the last of millions to learn, wow, it does work, but it took even longer than I thought. We were talking about this, this in our house this morning. You know, here, you know, Joseph has these dreams. He knows they come from God. Brothers are going to bow down for him. 17 years go by and it didn't happen, much of it in jail. You don't think that he started to doubt those dreams? Maybe they were from Satan. Maybe I had too much of something to eat that night. Maybe they really weren't from the Lord. Guess what? They were from the Lord, weren't they? God says, just hang in there. When it comes around, you'll be glad that I refined you in the process. What God is doing... Uh, for those of us on the narrow road, he's refining you in the process. It's not always easy, but it will be worth it. Let's look at verses 22 and 24. We finished through verse 21. Look at verse 22 first, and I'll read 24 with it. We're, I'm purposely skipping 23. We'll come back to that. 22 says, A good man leaves inheritance to his children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Verse 24, a verse every child hates. He who spares his rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him proudly. Every kid would like to cut this verse right out of the Bible, you know. It's got to be a mistake. It's child abuse right there in the scriptures. It's child protective services. Where are you? Um, but back to verse 22 for just a second. Uh, it says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children. 
The greatest inheritance we can leave is an eternal one, far and away. It may, you may never be rich. You may not be able to leave as much as you want to leave. I think most godly men want to leave something for their family, and you know, Lord willing, you'll be able to. I, I'll say this. If you focus on the eternal, God will take care of all the other stuff. If you focus on the other stuff, the eternal will not come to fruition. Focus on the eternal. That's the greatest thing we can leave behind. It makes no difference what you leave behind if it's not a spiritual legacy. And the legacy of saved kids and saved grandkids, that exceeds all the money and all the success this world can ever provide. And you can provide money and success. But if your kids never follow Christ, how in the world would that have been worth it? Well, at least I made it to heaven. They had a good life, though. They had a good life on earth. They didn't get to heaven. I mean, they, 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 they decided to go a different route, but, uh, but I gave them all the best things in their inheritance. Now, I can't think of many or any believer that would want to think in those terms. Understand that a life lived fully for God can also have a tremendous multi-generational impact. Wouldn't you agree? How about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Joseph, four generations right there. Look at the impact. Because of those four generations comes the sons of Israel, comes the nation of Israel, comes King David, all the way through the, the line of Christ comes. There's a great impact, a generational impact. You know, you don't, it wasn't that um, the patriarchs, they were never focused on, uh, you know, like today's, TV evangelist, that was, they were not preaching about prosperity. They were preaching about faith, and Abraham believed God. It was accounted under righteousness. It was the legacy of faith. It was the legacy of believing. And their lives have touched millions. Our lives are still touched because of their generational, multi-generational decision to leave a legacy of faith. Leaving a spiritual inheritance, uh, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy to leave a spiritual inheritance. It's hard enough to work for money. I get it. Now, those of you that worked hard today and you're tired right now and you, you're, you're, you kind of drug yourself in here, I, work is hard. I, I work hard. You work hard. Work is difficult enough. Leaving a spiritual legacy, it's even harder. Because le uh, living as a disciple isn't easy. And making disciples via the training of our kids isn't easy, is it? Mom's like, I can get an amen on that. I felt it today. Dad was at work just goofing off, and I'm at home. A mother of three unruly preschoolers was asked whether she would have children, uh, whether uh, if she would have children, would she do it all over again? Sure, she responded, just not the same three. <laughs> but new kids wouldn't change the problem, would it? You can get three different kids than the ones you have. God's all right. I've got a lot of souls up here. I'll give you three. You want to try this again? It wouldn't be any easier. The fact of training and discipline is difficult. It's not easy. You know, as a kid, we used, to, we used to not believe when our parents said, this is harder on me than it is on you. We did not believe that at all as kids. We're like, sure it is. Then you get older, you're like, man, this is hard. Can someone just, can I just sub someone in right now? I can, you know, professional wrestling, can I tap and someone jump in and do this for me? 
Now, verse 24 is connected to verse 22 in this sense. You look at verse 24, he who spares the rod hates his son. He who loves his disciplines promptly. It's connected to verse 22 in that uh, a legacy of love versus a legacy of neglect. God wants us to have a legacy of love. Love is the harder choice, isn't it? Because love involves the essential work of teaching, of correcting, of consequences. Now, corporal punishment should never be abusive in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Mostly should be for little small children, getting them in line while they're young because, uh, you know, when your kids are older, they can take you out. So it's really when they're young, really young, we're talking about toddlers and, you know, little, little ones. Those are the ones that, uh, you know, they need a little extra motivation here and there in, in various ways. I mean, this is not a parenting class tonight or anything, but uh, there, there certainly is a place for, you know, grabbing the cheek or maybe a little uh, swat or whatever, with things that are necessary. And God will give you wisdom on what that looks like and, and the way it should look. Uh, but from God's perspective, to not correct our children and not to do it promptly, to just put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off, but finally it's too late. That's what it says. Disciplines them promptly. From God's perspective, not to correct our children is to hate them. I know we don't see it that way. I mean, in our flesh, we don't. We, me, me neither. None of us, I don't think, maybe some of you are more spiritual. But in our flesh, I, when I see a parent not disciplined, I, I do not have the assumption they hate their kids. Do you have that assumption? I don't have that assumption. I have the assumption that they're either tired, it's too hard to work, They've tried it 8 million times. It hasn't worked. They're not getting support from the other spouse. I can go on down the list of reasons why they're in a public place. I mean, on and on it goes. But even all that list, that God's not talking about an isolated incident either. He's saying in the course of their life, in the course of life, you never disciplined and you hate them. Not talking about one failed moment. We all have that, right? Where we've actually done too far or not near enough. But to not discipline and to not ever discipline and just keep letting it go and keep letting it go and keep letting it go from God's perspective is to hate them. Whether we see it that way or not, guess what? He's right, we're wrong. That's what it comes down to. He's right, we're not. Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. I don't know about you, but God has certainly chastened me a lot in my lifetime. Most often when it started, I didn't think I deserved it. But the longer I was chastened, the more I was like, I came to see the light, that I really did need it, that I really was too dependent on myself or this or that. God chastens us. John 15, 2, I love this passage. I don't love how it always feels, but I love the passage. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it might bear fruit, more fruit. It's not fun when God prunes us. You know, you ever seen how a pruning shear looks? I mean, I, they can snap a branch pretty easy. He'll snap a few branches off of us, but it's because he wants us to bear more fruit. And if you want to see your kids bear not only the fruit of the Lord, but ultimately the fruit of salvation, we have to, we have to discipline them. 
That's how that legacy is left behind, right? That's how that legacy is left. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, each one disciplining the next generation because discipline is a good thing. You know, I bring up uh, elite military force. Their discipline is what keeps them alive, right? It's what makes them be able to do things other people can't do. They actually can come in the night, mission accomplished, gone before anyone knew they were there. Why? Because they've disciplined themselves. And everybody looks at them as heroes, but no one ever wants discipline. How can you look at someone as a hero, but then say, well, that, I would never do any of that. Why don't we at least try some of this, spiritually speaking? It'll have better, way better benefit anyway. Verse 23, we skipped it to kind of join 22 and 24 together, but look at verse 23. Much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for lack of justice there is waste. Even if someone doesn't have much financially, one of the things I love about this church, and not just this church, the body of Christ in general, is that the church is the one place should be, it's not always this case, in a lot of places it's not, but I believe where the gospel is presented as Jesus gave it, you will always have not only diversity in a, in a church from people's backgrounds, but you'll have economic diversity. In other words, it won't be just a church of rich folks, it won't be a church of all poor, it'll be all points in between, right? Because Jesus would call the multitudes, and that kind of that brings a little bit of everybody in because God is no respecter of persons, regardless of what you have. But if someone doesn't have much financially, no status to speak of, maybe they have very little education, or even not much opportunity, anywhere in the world, God is faithful. God can still provide for the honest efforts of the poor and supply all their needs. Because Jesus said, even if you have just something to eat, and just a very little bit, you got clothes to wear, garments, you have enough. Now, we may not think that way in America, because we think, well, unless I have a lot, or at least as much as my neighbor does, right, that I don't have much. But God can provide and has provided down through the ages for those who don't have much. Even in their fount, they might, not, they might only have a little plot, but God in that little, there's enough there in, those, in that fallow ground that's you know, hard, it's not easy, it doesn't seem like there's much there, God can still provide enough. But I think there's something else here to see and understand in this text. There's much food in the fallow ground for the poor, and for lack of justice there is waste or it is swept away. I think there's something else to see here. Those that the world often ignores, patronizes, takes it or even takes advantage of have just as much value and potential as the leaders, as the rulers, as the power brokers. By the way, the leaders, the rulers, and power brokers do have often, not always, really big egos and really think highly of themselves. Hey, we'll do we'll give you a little habitat for humanity project for you. Right? But it's not like they're hanging out with them. We do in the body of Christ. We'll hang out with anyone that gets saved, won't we? Not like, hey, you, you kind of live over there. We come to a little project for you, and then we will see you in another 10 years just to check and see how things are going. Now, the body of Christ brings in people. 
from, doesn't matter the background. Jesus spent the majority of his time ministering to the poor, didn't he? Ministering to the diseased, ministering to the down and out, ministering to the marginalized. And God has built his church not on the bank account of millionaires. He hasn't. Not on the educational elites. Not on the recognized leaders of business. God has never needed the business world to authenticate his ministry. Has he? No. For the most part, primarily and historically, it's been the very average people that God's built the church on. And many times, nondescript and even poor. Some, some saints have said the, whole, the church has been built on the poor. That God take, in other words, God takes the... Paul said, you are the off-scour of the earth. That's a great letter to get, by the way. Paul said, you guys are kind of a low means. You're not the, you're not the aristocracy of the Roman Empire. You're kind of just the average and even on the social scale... I'm talking about the social scale, not the way God sees them, the social scale, the below average, and yet God is making a temple out of you guys. That's what he does. Most of the, most of the people that Paul ministered to or tried to reach that were the, the, the wealthy and the leaders, they all rejected the gospel. Didn't they? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, same thing. Not always the case. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that the church has not been built on the backs of the world's elite. It hasn't been. But the world's greed, its self-interest, the lip service for caring for people, it doesn't fool God, does it? God's not impressed by PR campaigns. He's impressed by what's at the heart. God doesn't waste the potential of the poor and needy. He maximizes the potential of the poor and needy. The world often exploits it, but gives it really wordy lip service, doesn't it? Let me give you an example. I, I, I was in the business world for 16, 17 years, and I saw a lot, a lot of things firsthand, and, and there's a lot of good people in every industry. That's not the point, but listen to this. This 2015 CNBC article titled, Why Corporate CEO Pay is So High and Going Higher. The average S&P 500 company CEO, this is directly quoted from the article, the average S&P 500 company CEO made 373 times the salary of the average production and non-supervisory worker in 2014. That was 2014. Up from 331 times in 2013. So it went from 331 to 373. 373 times higher than the average production worker. I love this. Point number three in the, in, the, in the list of reasons why their pay is so high. This is classic. How tightly is CEO pay tied to performance? Not very tightly at all, according to a much-cited 2000 study in the Journal of Management. Men take care of men. People take care of people. Strata takes care of strata. It happens. It happens here it happens in Brazil, it happens in Africa, it happens in Asia, it happens all over the world because God sees the whole world. There's much food in the fallow ground of the poor, but for lack of justice, there's waste. It's often just swept away because the world's like, you know, you're just a number. I remember at times where I, I, when I was in the business world, I was like, hold on, you just laid off 1,000 people. 
But I just looked at your salary reports for the highest executives, and everybody got raises. What's up with that? You know? God sees these things. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? In the church, we can never operate the way the world does. We, we see anyone that gets saved, let's say, and the church sadly has become, and sometimes uh, like the world, I mean, it, it puts up on high pedestals that, well, our pastor is a doctor. Well, Peter wasn't. He would not qualify. I think he's qualified. Do you think Peter's qualified to pastor a church? He, he pastored the first church in Jerusalem. Peter was preached, 3,000 people got saved. When's the last time your pastor preached and 3,000 got Well, that's never happened. We've only had three people saved in the last 30 years. Well, I think there's something wrong. Dr. So-and-so is not living up to the fisherman, is he? And I'm not saying that to put down. I mean, I, I just quoted Dr. Adrian Rogers. It, it's not about, my point is we can't get caught up in the same thing the world gets caught up as titles and stuff. The question is, is someone anointed or are they not anointed? Are they called or are they not called? If they're the janitor and they're called, they'll be used more mightily by God than somebody else. And we have Calvary Chapel pastors right now that used to be janitors. They weren't more, they're not, by the way, they're not more important as a pastor than they were a janitor. Their importance to God is how much they love the Lord. That's all it comes down to. They love the Lord, he'll use them. There's a lot, God says, there's a lot to be in that fallow ground that needs to be harvested. And God wants us to do it in the same way that Jesus did it. Just preach the gospel to everybody, and God will then initiate a calling and say, I never would have thought that person, they had no education, they had no this. Yeah, but they had a passion for the Lord. And they might just have a connection with people, and God will use them in a great way. Verse 25, our last verse. Uh, wrapping up chapter 13. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Now, there's two kinds of food. There's the physical food. There's the spiritual food. Which one do we need? Both, of course, right? When we, This is something the Lord's been really speaking to me lately, too. Um, many of us have prayed over food for years, right? I have... Just this year, the Lord has really, I mean, just constantly reminded me that when I'm praying to say thanks for my food, it's deeply sincere. Jesus never did it flippantly. All right, kids, thanks for food. All right, jump in. I'm not saying that all that you should say, and now we're going to pray for the next 30 minutes over this hamburger. <laughs> That's not good either. I'm just saying that. Prayer should still be short, but sincere. And the sincerity is in the heart. A short prayer that says, Lord, thank you so much that we have something to eat tonight. Amen. If that's sincere from the heart, that's good. That's a good thing. And when I look at this, the righteous eats to the satisfying of the soul. We are to eat food to be strengthened for the service of the Lord. And yes, God, because he, he loves us enough, you get to enjoy that piece of cheesecake, even though it's not necessary to your health, but if you're living healthy, you can have something like that. You know, those things are, God gave us taste buds for a reason, so we get to enjoy a Ben and Jerry's, or we get to enjoy a good steak, or whatever it is. All that stuff's fine. But when we eat, 
the physical food, say, Lord, truly, I need to be nourished to go back out and serve you in your employment, as a mom, as a dad, as a grandparent, or whatever it is, we eat to be strengthened. So pray seriously of thanks for our food, but also when, you eat, when we eat to say, Lord, use this truly so I do have the strength to serve you. And so lately, I have, found, I have caught myself, I was only praying over the big meals. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, anything in between didn't count, right? Appetizers don't count. This doesn't count, you know, all these things. But Lord, just say, just say thanks for it all each time. All right, Lord, thanks for this. Thank you for this. Thank you. And of course, if you're taking things you don't really need, he'll remind you that, hey, you don't really need that right now. Hey, you might should fast today because now you need spiritual food. You need to pray over these things. Well, spiritually, we need to be reading we need to be studying, meditating on the Word of God, thinking about verses, praying over, praying back these things, and teaching and discipling the Word of God to someone else. We don't just take food in. We also are to be distributors. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? Who was the ones that were handing the food out? Was it Jesus? No. It was the disciples. They were the ones handing the food out. We're not only to eat for our soul, but we're actually to serve other people, both physical food, just like you parents provide for you, you put the meat on the table, but also spiritual food. I want to close, though, uh, with a story, true story, that kind of uh, shows, you know, we, we talked about the fountain of life, the Word of God. I want to close with a story, the true story that um, emphasizes the power of the Scriptures to transform. Um, you may have heard of Mutiny on the Bounty. You ever heard of that? The Bible, this is from uh, Keith Miller's book, The Edge of Adventure. The Bible can change not only a life, but an entire lifestyle. Most of us have heard the story of mutiny on the bounty, but few of us have heard how the Bible played a very vital role in that historic event. The bounty was a British ship which sailed from England in 1787, bound for the South Seas. The idea was that those on board would spend some time among the islands, transplanting fruit-bearing and food-bearing trees and doing other things to make some of the islands more habitable. After 10 months of voyage, the bounty arrived safely at its destination. And for six months, the officers of the crew gave themselves to the duties placed upon them by their government. When the special task was completed, however, and the order came to embark again, the sailors rebelled. They had formed strong attachments for the native girls and the climate and the ease of life of the South Sea Island life was very much to their liking. The result was mutiny on the bounty, and the sailors placed Captain Blige and a few loyal men adrift in an open boat. Very nice of them, huh? I mean, it was all 100% historical fact. Captain Blige, in an almost miraculous fashion, survived the ordeal, was rescued, and eventually made it home to London to tell his story. An expedition was launched to punish the mutineers, and in time, 14 of them were captured and paid the penalty under British law. But nine of the men had gone to another distant island. There they formed a colony. Perhaps there has never been a more degraded and debauched social life than of that colony. They learned to distill whiskey from a native plant, and the whiskey, as usual, 
along with other habits, led to their ruin. Disease and murder took the lives of all the native men and all but one of the white men, named Alexander Smith. He found himself the only man left on the island, surrounded by a crowd of women and half-islander, half-Europeans. Alexander Smith found a Bible among the possessions of a dead sailor. The book was new to him. Now, you might think, well, everyone in England knew the Bible. No, so the book was new to him. He had never read it before. He sat down and read it through. He believed it and began to appropriate it. He wanted, other, he wanted to share it with others and the benefits of this book, so he taught classes to the women and the children, and he read to them and taught them the Scriptures. It was 20 years before another ship ever found that island, and when it did, a miniature utopia was discovered. The people were living in decency, prosperity, harmony, and peace. There was nothing of crime, disease, immorality, insanity, or illiteracy. How was it accomplished? By first reading, then believing, then appropriating the truth of God. Is that not amazing? True story. That's the part Hollywood doesn't like to talk about. Our government leaders don't want to talk about it because we actually have the solution right here, don't we? It's not all the program. It's not more money. It's not if we spent a billion on the school system. We know how that's worked out. It's this right here. Amen? This is the fountain of life. Lord, we thank you for our time in your word tonight. We ask, Lord, that um, that which you have given us, Lord, we would not only receive as spiritual food, but, Lord, we would it would nourish us and we'd walk in the strength of it. That we'd grow in these things, Lord, that you would deliver us from everything that would keep us from your word and we'd grow in the faith that comes by hearing your word and, Lord, communing with you in prayer. Thank you for this time. I pray your blessing on each and every person in this room and may the Lord bless you and keep you and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord give uh, Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.